You have reached the voicemail box of Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen St. Felix. This week, we're interviewing Harvard professor Leah Wright Rigger about the tradition of black conservatives in the United States. Next, we talk about Michelle Obama's incredible speech at the DNC. Leave a message. Hey, Doreen, it's Ira. Um, I know you saw Ben Carson talking about Lucifer at the RNC. We need to call up the expert on black Republicans and black conservatism so we can get to the bottom of this. We are here with Professor Leah Wright Rigger, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Professor Rigger has written a book, and it's called The Loneliness of the Black Republican. We're going to talk to her today about the aftermath of the RNC, the tradition of black Republicans in America, and conservatism writ large. Thank you for talking with us today, Professor Rigger. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I think first off, You know, we're in the wake of the RNC at this point. It's been a few days since it ended, so I'm not reeling anymore. You know, that was really difficult for me to watch. But I was wondering for you, as someone who studies republicanism and then also black conservatism in in America, the tradition of it, how are you feeling after watching um, that display? Do you think that black republicans feel seen by what is now the party of Trump? So the RNC was an interesting, kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, It was an interesting event. Um, You know, I thought that I had lost the capacity to be shocked um, at this point, having kind of, you know, (laughs) read through all of these things and what have you. But I still found it shocking that of of all the delegates, right, when we tallied the delegate count, um, only 18 of the 2,400 delegates were black, right? So less than 1%. So that's a shocking statistic. Um, it hasn't been that low in, you know, in generations. In fact, I mean, this is one of these things where, you know, in 2004, the Republican Party hit a high of black delegates with about six point, about 6.7% um, delegate tally, black delegate tally. And now they are at an all-time recorded low. So that is, you know, that's a stunning kind of uh, transformation. And I think we, we kind of witnessed the reasons why, many of the reasons why, or the explicit reasons why, um, and just kind of listening to the tone and the tenor of the conversation at the Republican National Convention. And so what were, you know, aspects of the tone or the tenor of the speeches, you know, maybe specifically Ben Carson's speech in the past year, he has both risen and then also very deeply fallen as the face of black conservatism in America. At one point, you know, he was ahead of Trump in the polls. So can you explain to us, you know, maybe what were the linchpin moments of that phenomenon? So so Ben Carson is interesting because at at one point he's riding, he's really riding the crest of Republican popularity. He leads the polls for a couple of weeks in November. 
Um, he continues to have incredibly high popularity amongst um, Republicans at large, which is which is one, you know one of the prime reasons why Donald Trump brought him onto his campaign and why he was a speaker at the convention. Um, and even when we look at his popularity in those November polls, um, he still was getting managing to get about 20% of the black vote. Right, black people said about 20% of black people said that they would support Ben Carson for president, and that's more than any of the other presidential nominees, uh, Republican presidential nominees. Now, with that said, right, he, he begins to plummet amongst Republicans, in part because if you look at polling and if you look at data, there was never really any indication from his supporters that they would be loyal to him, right? So the vast majority of his supporters said that they hadn't 100% made up their mind. And so as he begins to make significant flubs, especially on foreign policy, uh, Donald Trump once again overtakes him in the polls. Now, amongst African Americans, we begin to see his popularity wane, and, and we have to remember, uh, Dr. Carson was incredibly popular amongst Black audiences before he got into politics. Right? Oh, he's yeah. the gifted hands author. You know, it's it's the book that was handed out in you know to little Black school children um, or to you know churchgoers. Right. Um, so he has this kind of really big popularity, and that begins to drop drastically. Um, as he, you know, becomes more and more of a prominent voice in the Republican Party. And then on top of that, you have this really interesting moment where, where Ben Carson, I think that really captures the, the dilemma of Ben Carson, right? When he launches his campaign, uh, he does so in a moment where Baltimore is erupting in protest, right? Uh, and, and we remember this in, in protest over the death of Freddie Gray. And so he traveled, I mean, Ben Carson is, uh, is Baltimore's one of, you know, Baltimore is his adopted home. And so he travels there and says, well, you know, if black people had jobs, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't see things like this. And he talks about, he says, I've never had a bad experience with the police. And right there, what it does is it reduces black complaints to one of saying this is merely about, you know, unemployment and instead about uh, systemic, right, systemic grievances and problems with uh, an institutional system. A lot of the popularity that he had enjo- that he had enjoyed around, you know, being this kind of um, uh, gi- very gifted um, doctor, very talented uh, black doctor, and being this prototype for for black uplift, right, black uplift stories. Um, is erased when it comes to his political leanings and kind of his political conservatism. I feel like one of the main issues of like this election within the whole Democratic Party is, you know, sort of the Bernie or bust movement where you have some people who don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton at all. And they're like, maybe Trump won't be so bad. And it seems like, you know, you don't get that quality of, you know, I'm going to go and vote for equality, you know, however I feel about these policy issues um, from a lot of young white voters um, who are sort of, you know, equality for other people be damned, you know, I'll be fine. I just don't want to deal with the fact that I can't vote for, you know, my special candidate. 
Right. And, and so the, the interesting thing here, I think, is when we look at the primary votes, uh, African-Americans overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton in the primaries, especially black women. Right? And so when we look at the numbers, it actually turns out to be a little bit of a generational issue whereby, mm-hmm. you know, um, African-Americans over the age of 35 support Hillary Clinton at upwards of 70 percent. African-Americans over the age of 45 support Hillary Clinton uh, at at 85%. African-Americans over the age of 60 uh, support uh, Hillary Clinton at 89%. But what we're seeing, part of what we're seeing is that African-Americans, and a a lot of times, kind of look at a larger tradition of the politician. So do we know this politician? Uh How do we feel about this politician? When we're weighing our choices, right, we're going to think pragmatically. Right? So do we take a risk on an unknown? Right? Or do we, take, you know, do we go with, say, Hillary Clinton, who we have known? Now, what's interesting here, though, is that it's much more divided amongst black millennials. Right? So the younger that you get amongst this population, meaning that black millennials may have a different set of criteria about they're actually split, right? Black voters under the age of 30, um, half go for Bernie Sanders, about half go for Hillary Clinton. Um, and part of that is because, right, they don't, they don't necessarily have the history, right, or know the legacy, um, or better way of phrasing this is, younger black voters didn't grow up with the Clintons, but they grew up with the consequences of the kind of terrible, really terrible, some of the terrible Clinton-era policies, mm-hmm. like the crime bill, right, or welfare reform, or things like that. And so when they're thinking about their vote, right, they're thinking outside of terms that, are, that we're seeing in older voters. So this is something I, I think what's, what's really interesting here is this is something that actually affects the 2012 election because we see a number of disillusioned younger black voters, right, where they don't come out in as high of number as they did in 2008. So they are levying critiques not only at Hillary Clinton, but also at Barack Obama. So this is, this is a very different kind of conversation, um, right, in a, in a nuanced and complicated conversation um, that, that brings in all of these ideas about what it means to be progressive, taking accountability for past policies, right, uh, who might be the most pragmatic choice, um, and does that actually matter uh, based on your age? Part of your work um, or what you study based on your book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, is you don't work from the uh, starting point that black voters, black people are a monolith, right? Like you're able to identify the splits and to give us a very rich history of a tradition that can be seen as um, a pariah within like mainstream liberal media. And I think for me as a younger millennial black voter, um, I really identify with um, feeling that although I was, of course, born during the Clinton administration, I'm more um, familiar with the aftermath of it. I'm more familiar with the consequences. And same for Obama. I think it's kind of a taboo to ever speak out against Obama, even while still supporting him across party lines. It's like something that harkens back to understandings of black respectability. You know, like you don't criticize him in public. That might be something that you do inside of the home, but not to the white public. But just I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about this book. The Loneliness of the Black Republican, 
What drove you, you know, as a black scholar in particular to study this tradition that isn't studied by most other people? So the the interesting thing about writing this book is that I kind of started from a place where I said, okay, I want to study and look at democratic politics, think, originally thinking democratic politics and black people, but I want to do it in a non-traditional way. And so I thought, you know, you know what, I'll look at something like the Rainbow Coalition. And then somebody else wrote that book. <laughs> but one of the interesting things that came out of that study, right, in kind of that early research was, you know, exactly what we've been talking about thus far, which is that black voters are not a monolith. They're not monolithic voters, and they're not, they're not um, all of the same, despite their partisanship. So I found a speech, you know, that, that um, uh, Reverend J- uh, Jesse Jackson gives to the Republican National Con- uh, Committee in the mid-1970s, and it struck me as really odd, because, you know, this is the man who, you know, revitalizes and, and really kind of pumps up a, a Democratic coalition in 1984 and 1988, um, who, you know, is known for his work with Operation Breadbasket, the, you know, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that kind of thing. And so to see this kind of relationship, even if it's, you know, brief, struck me as, as different. Um, And so I began to kind of do this research because I wanted to unpack what lay behind actual black partisanship, right? And so what I found is that our assumption um, about black voters uh, rests on two very basic truths. The first one is that black voters uh, across any racial group are the most partisan of voters. So in the last, you know, um, uh, uh, 50 years or so, uh, black voters have, co- uh, have cast 85% of their votes to Democratic candidates. Most black elected officials, right, more than uh, 85% of black elected officials are Democrats. Right? And in 2012, black voters came out in record numbers and gave Barack Obama, you know, about 94% of their vote. So, so there's no, you know, they are the most loyal um, of the Democratic Party's core constituency. The other truth that this rests on is that the modern GOP really seems to have kind of turned its back or seems hostile um, to civil rights. So we're thinking about, you know, the Pat Buchanan's, um, and in some respects, right, Donald Trump has really articulated exactly uh, what black frustrations about the Republican Party have been over the last, you know, 50 some odd years. So he has, you know, he's taking a, a, a megaphone and really amplified all of those, um, mm-hmm. all of those implicit problems and all of those strains and tensions. And so given that we think about these two, tr- two truths, right, they work together to tell us or suggest to us that all black voters are Democrats. Um, but this doesn't really give us any nuance. It doesn't tell us about black critiques on the left or the right of the Democratic Party or Democratic politicians. It doesn't tell us how we get to where we are today, right? Um, black people didn't magically kind of just show up in the Democratic Party. We know that they used to be the most loyal of Republican voters. Um, and then too, I think, that it doesn't tell us, right, when we start to look at this minority of minority voters, right, who are minorities in their racial community and minorities in their political party, 
it doesn't tell us why they vote the way that they do, right? What they believe, how they came to the party, and all of these things. And, and realistically, there have been very few studies actually devoted to exploring and really unpacking who these people are. Which is crazy to me um, because, you know, the Republicans and, you know, particularly conservative media outlets will, you know, constantly talk about the black vote. And some people will always online bring up like a persnickety response being like, you used to be Republican. And I don't think anyone has ever really unpacked, like, why did we used to be Republican? Um, And why do so many black voters go Democrat now? And I just, I wonder where you see the party going, because as you said, it has sort of moved away from civil rights. I mean, this, the entire GOP platform this year is just sort of anti civil rights, um, anti-women's choices. And, you know, do you see people in the party who are trying to make waves to sort of correct that? Because what you stated about black millennials um, being so divided, um, you know, it seems like we're sort of ripe for the picking, you know, if the Republican Party were to you know, reform itself a bit or, you know, start embracing the people who, you know, are a bit disillusioned with what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. You know, I wouldn't say that I'm the level, you know, that Doreen is uh, because I'm a bit older than her. Um, So I was born before the Clinton administration and I don't have that sort of You know, I see the aftermath, but I also see what led up to Clinton becoming president as well. Um, But I think, you know, if there were some sort of conversation had with the Republican Party where they addressed concerns that um, not just black people, all people of color sort of have with their party line, they could probably clean up with collecting a lot of new Republicans. So, yes, there are people who are working in the party on this. And, and there have been historically in moments like these, there have always been people who, are, who have been working in the party on this, um, who really believe and who understand that given the changing demographics of our country, um, given kind of the, the major um, uh, transformational shifts in our country on attitudes and opinions on varying issues, especially around equality, that black voters, that Latino voters, that Asian voters, that LGBTQ voters, um, you know, all of these various kind of demographics um, could be part of a winning Republican coalition. And I think, again, the, the, the looming demographic change changes, right? The, the 2013 autopsy, Republican autopsy report mentions that by 2015, by 2050, um, black, Latino, Asian minorities um, may equal about roughly half of the country's population. So given all of that reality, that they have to change their strategy. And we've seen this for, you know, any number of years, really the last 80 years where there were these, there are these people who really double down and say, okay, if we make civil rights and equality a non-issue, then all of a sudden it changes, right? 
political polarization and it changes our electoral strategy at the state and local and federal level, national level. Um, and the interesting thing is, right, just to give you kind of a contemporary example, we've seen people like Rand Paul tackling this. We've even seen people like Paul Ryan tackling this. The problem arises, though, right, when these people or when the party then engage in activities, actions, behaviors, or even rhetoric that complete that seems to undermine their very basic message about inclusion. And so, you know, the, the counter that I always get to this is, well, the Democrats do it too. Well, the Democrats don't have a problem right now in terms of, you know, partisan support from Black, Latino, and Asian voters. Um, so when you're, you know, when you're kind of fighting um, or working on this battle of uh, winning back these voters, um, you have to do, you have to push a little bit more. Um, it also kind of uh, is part of a much longer history, a much longer but recent history um, that suggests, right, gives a suggestion that um, race and inequality are only discussed and used in antagonistic ways. So... You know, Paul Ryan has been doing really interesting work with his anti-poverty tour. A lot of people don't know that, um, but he is, you know, he's working with the Jack Kemp Foundation. Uh, Jack Kemp is actually a, a Republican who enjoys uh, immense, uh, uh, before he died, uh, join, uh, enjoys uh, immense popularity amongst um, African-American audiences. So we've seen Paul Ryan kind of working with that, working with Bob Woodson of the Neighborhood Center, uh, Center for Neighborhood Enterprise on ways to reach out to black voters. Much I mean, of listen, that, my right? love for Paul Ryan is very well documented here because um, I'm from Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, I there's so many times where I feel like I love him and I get what he's trying to do. And then there's other times, you know, like when he caves and he's supporting Donald Trump where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get off that train. Well, so that's that is precisely it. That is precisely it, right? So you have you have these moments and you have these flashes where it is remarkable and where black people really respond. I mean, you, you can like actually kind of track it. Um, a, a very quick example is Tim Scott coming out and saying, when we talk about police brutality, right, this is not just kind of a made up thing. I too have experienced it as a black man living in South Carolina, who is a Republican, right? His Republicanism didn't, you know, um, kind of insulate him from being treated like black men and women in this country, right? So it's him pointing out that there is a significant and sincere problem and that it is not un-American to say, right, that we want to, we want reform. And yet much of that message is lost in the kind of disarray um, of the Republican National Convention. So you have people who, you know, in an alternate scenario might have said, hmm, that makes me really interested in the Republican Party, who then look at the Republican National Convention and say, there's absolutely no way that this party is inclusive of somebody like me. Right? So it is an alienating, right? It is an alienating message. And so we see this over and over again. Now, now what's interesting to me, though, is that in moments, and Republicans know this, in moments where um, kind of 
black people feel uh, either betrayed by the Democratic Party, disillusioned, disenchanted, unhappy, right? Where they see very little difference between the two parties in terms of um, their commitment to inequality, right? Uh, Republican, black Republican affiliation and black Republican independent affiliation goes up. This is just, I mean, this is, this is the truism. Um, and so we see this at various pockets in time. So it's exactly this where some Republicans say, well, look at that, right? This is evidence that we could have, you know, black support. There are some black people who may feel an affinity for or feel a natural relationship to the Republican Party, whether it because, be because they are financial conservatives, whether it be because they are social conservatives, uh, you know, what have you, but who feel unable to support the party because of the, you know, of the way, right, that it treats race in this country. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think that's just... It's such a precise summation of one's everyday experience as a black person. It's like you might want to ally with ideals or, you know, common narratives that at the end of the day aren't elastic. They aren't able to accommodate for those events of trauma, those national events of disregard by the majority white public that end up, you know, pushing you to what you have to do to survive as opposed to what you might like to do to move forward in a, you know, utopic political way. There's this compulsion to say that we shouldn't talk about the intricacies of party uh, partisan politics because we're in such a dire moment with this election. But I think if we don't discuss these things in right now, what are we going to do, you know, post 2016? What are we going to do when we need to rebuild after the catastrophe that Trump and maybe Clinton are leading us to? Right. And, and so I think it's, it's also important, I think, the, the immediate urge or the, the immediate inclination to kind of dismiss conversations like this is, is not the correct one, right? Because it is important. If you're, if you're a Democrat, it's incredibly important for thinking about, you know, how do, you know, how do we retain this kind of strong support from um, our minority coalition? If you're a Republican, it's really important to think about, you know, why haven't we been able to make inroads with black communities, right? Or with Latino communities? And in the case of, say, Asian communities, where there has been an absolute, uh, an absolute reverse of partisanship over the last 20 years. So why are these groups moving even further and further away from us? So it, it's important to have those conversations moving forward, right? And not kind of uh, descend into, um, you know, these, these, ideological silos or kind of denial that suggests, you know, that partisanship is it and, you know, what is what is and there's no there's no moving forward. Yeah. And we hope all our speed dial listeners will have these conversations if we have any black Republicans listening to our podcast, which I think we don't. But (laughs) you never know. I'm pretty sure Ben Carson listens to our podcast. (laughs) Hey, Ben, what's up? How's Lucifer? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Leah. Oh, no problem. Thank you, guys. So, that was wild. Um, I felt like I learned 
so much about black Republicans. Um, and I'm also glad no one ever handed me a book by Bid Carson when I was a child. <laughs> Professor Rieger is amazing. But, you know, it's funny. I was handed many books about Ben Carson when I was a child. Um, the like gifted, pamphlets warning you to stay away from this man? No, they're like picture books and they make him like so beautiful and his afro is perfectly picked out and all you want to do is be a neurosurgeon like Ben Carson. And I also oh saw, you know, there was a Lifetime movie where Cuba Gooding Jr. played him, right? I saw that. I was all into the Ben Carson. I do propaganda. remember that. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Are you judging me? I wish... No, you know what? Maybe your campaign slogan is make Ben Carson great again. <laughs> or black again. That would work too. But you know, you know which black person made a good ass speech this week who redeemed us Michelle from Michelle Obama. Oh my god, Michelle freaking Obama. Michelle Harriet Tubman Obama. Michelle Maya Angelou. Obama. Michelle Beyonce Obama got up on that DNC stage in Philly and gave the best speech at any convention since her husband's almost 10 years ago. That is not debatable. That's, that speech was so fucking good. You know, you know the Trumps were shook because Donald Trump was tweeting all sorts of shit about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker. He didn't say a damn thing about Michelle. Nope, because what the hell could he say? I just wanna, can we just fawn over Michelle Obama? Like, I love her. She, I wish she were my mom. I wish I woke up in a house built by slaves every morning <laughs> just so I could be close to her. <laughs> but the thing is, she is your mom. She's all of our moms. That was the whole theme of this speech, right? Which is so, it's really brilliant because that's what I think people would um, admonish Michelle Obama for when she was first campaigning for Barack. People were like, she's not feminine in the mom-like way in the way that we want our first ladies to be, which is ridiculous when you think about you know, Laura Bush. I didn't really get like intense mom vibes from her, but I digress. The fact that Michelle was I got able to lady down the street. I got lady down the street who gives you apples for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, that's a better um, representation of Miss Laura Bush. I was so amazed to see Michelle kind of subvert that critique that she's gotten for the eight years that she's been first lady and then use it to, you know, make a point about Clinton's policies and the work that she's done for women and children and also people who are differently abled. It was so smart and it really just elevated the theme of the night. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we're talking about Michelle Obama as like everyone's mom, um, Hillary has sort of been like, you know, that teacher that you always have problems with. Um, <laughs> and finally, Michelle just sat us down and she was like, listen, you are going to be taking this class for at least four years. <laughs> so let's deal with that. And you know what? The teacher's actually pretty good. <laughs> that is the perfect analogy. 
oh my god yeah she was like and but the thing was she didn't even say that outright she wasn't like y'all know you don't have a choice she made a really nice argument for why clinton is the candidate to choose and while doing so she was never really leaning on the things that like al franken and cory booker did she wasn't making an argument that like you shouldn't choose donald trump it was more you should choose Hillary Clinton, it was positive. It was radiating. And that's how people want to feel. First of all, first of all, Cory Booker was literally only there to be like, hey, y'all, I'm here. I'm going to be resident for president in a few years. True. Very true. That is all he cared about. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, she was, she was just majestic, you know? And um, I love how, like you said, she subverted, you know, a lot of the stuff that she was criticized for early on. Um, I loved how she talked about the spirit of America and about how, you know, when they go low, we rise high, you know, rise above all the drama, as Candy Burris once sang. (laughs) Because I remember when she was criticized for saying, you know, this is the first time I'm proud of my country, et cetera. And everyone was like, oh, this black woman's not proud of America? And it's like, no, bitch. Why would she be? (laughs) (laughs) But now she's like, you know what? Right? Now she's like, you know what? I'll give you your America the Beautiful. I'll give it to you. And my hair will be laid while I give it to you. It was so... It was laid. The dress was on point. The it's makeup. like Melania could oh. never. I don't want to, you know, get into, you know, comparing, you know, and pitting two women against one another. <laughs> but I will say that it was just so. It was just such a striking contrast to last week. You know, last week, as we've established, was about. Satan and about like <laughs> fear mongering. Um, and this was, you know, an evolution of Barack's message. You know, we had yeah. a message of hope for eight years, and now the message is now get to work. Yeah. I mean, I would even argue there's enough different about her message that makes it her own, you know, that it might not even be necessarily an offshoot of Barack's message. And for me, where that comes into play in particular is the idea of the station of the first lady, right? I was reading a bunch of articles after Melania Trump's gaffe in which she plagiarized Michelle Obama. And a lot of people were saying- Stole. Just say stole. (laughs) Okay, she stole stole it. (laughs) But a lot of people were, (laughs) were arguing, you know, should- the first spouse even have to be a spokesperson for the president. You know, they're not politicians, so why do they even have to be put in that position? And they're having, like, these existential conversations about something that has been solidified literally since George Washington. It is the case that the the first spouse does have to be public and political in some way. And I think that with people like Michelle Obama and also Hillary Clinton, these are educated ass women. Michelle Obama is a lawyer. Michelle Obama was a more successful lawyer than her husband for a very long time. She was his advisor at Harvard. So 
she is so keen and very um, just precise about how she can integrate the idea of First Lady, which is supposed to be kind of apolitical, but then also make it so strident and make it about work, like you say. Like, you know, she's not she's not a stay-at-home mom. She has been championing her own policies. Um, and I just, like, salivate to think what she's going to do when she is no longer in the White House. Which, you know... I love how there was that whole convo, you know, about, like, trying to make excuses for Melania. And it's like, sorry, we have a long history of first ladies who bring a lot of shit to the table, you know? Like, nobody's here for making excuses and letting Melania just go be a socialite. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, you can be both, though. Like, Michelle is absolutely a socialite. She's a fashion darling. She's always, you know, she's in Kenzo, in that White House built by slaves. Like, she's always snatched. But she's able to maintain the duality of being, you know, someone who's, like, the country's ultimate eye eye candy, but also is someone with their own set of politics and their own way of putting those things into motion. Meanwhile, Melania should be working at Dylan's candy shop. Oh my God. Why? Why'd you go there? (laughs) (laughs) Cause when you plagiarize in high school, you end up having to drop out and work at the local candy store. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't even bother me like that though. Like, you know what, girl? Like, you got in a situation with your sugar daddy, and now he wants to be president, and now you're fucked. I get it, Ma. So she was. she's just trying to get out of this situation. <laughs> if my sugar daddy did that, you know how upset I would be? I'm trying to live, like, a low-profile life. You know, wake up in my house also built by slaves. I don't want to be, like, dealing with all this stuff. I feel you, Melania. I'm team Melania in that sense. You know, that's actually a very apt analysis of Melania. You know, like, what do you do when, you know, your situation gets fucked up? You know, it's like you're dating a dude and then he goes to prison. You're like, am I supposed to stay with him? You're dating a guy, you know, and he decides he wants to give all his money away and like go live in an ashram somewhere like (laughs) or he wants to run for president and you're like i didn't sign up for this shit she should um she should leave him honestly she should go back to slovenia they love her there they're still waiting for her i honestly keep thinking like you know he's gone through so many wives like i feel like the funniest thing that could happen is for him to be going through a divorce while trying to run for president. Oh my God. I'm trying to will that in the universe. That is incredible. I just, I'm still basking in the glow of Michelle though. Like there was also for me why it was in some ways even a bittersweet moment was black women have not actually been made the face of this campaign up until this point, right? Black women are the most important voters in this country. They are the cornerstone of the Democratic Party. You're not going to become president if you don't have them while you're a Democrat. But 
there was all this criticism that was being leveled at Clinton where it was like, where are your black women? Like, where is your outreach? And that also happened with Bernie. And then to have it be that a black woman saved your ass and gave the best speech in your campaign, including you. I mean, what's more to say about the labor that black women perform that is thankless and then, you know, catapults white women, white men, you know, POC people to stations that are higher than them while they are, you know, doing they're doing the meaningful work, you know? No, I get it. You know, Hillary Clinton is definitely Gladys Knight in this situation. And Michelle went out there dutifully as a pip. And, you know, was like, let me actually sing the song for you. And I don't know if that metaphor works. <laughs> I don't understand that metaphor at all. <laughs> you know Gladys Knight and the Pips. Oh, Gladys Knight and the Pips. Gladys Knight and the Pips. All right. The, the metaphor stays. Yeah. I get you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. You know, she she did all the work. You know, she's the black grounds, basically. Hillary Clinton is... <laughs> better metaphor Hillary Clinton is that white singer who's like you know what I need some soul she's like I need the black choir to come out and sing down oh my god she's Sam Smith (laughs) (laughs) oh my god well her ass better get that damn Grammy which would be in this case the presidency of the United States am I right let the church say amen amen As a reminder, we will be launching our feedback segment soon. If you have any questions you would like to ask Doreen and I, whether it's how to protect yourself from the Ben Carson in your life or how to listen to Sam Smith songs um, and invigorate you to vote for Hillary Clinton, call us at 424 354 That number is 424-354-9335. And leave a voicemail. This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Kasia Mihailovic, Michael Catano, and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.